0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, May 1st. On today's show, we'll talk about the Golden State Killer case and what it means for the privacy of your DNA. Then, my co-host April Glazer is on the scene today at Facebook's annual developer conference in San Jose. She'll join us from there to talk about all the news Mark Zuckerberg announced this morning and what it means for the future of Facebook, maybe also the future of dating apps. Here's a hint, it's not a happy day today at Match.com headquarters. Later, we'll be joined by Eric Lundgren. He's a pioneer in e-waste recycling, taking used and discarded computers and electronic components and making them into stuff people can use. Now he's been sentenced to prison for 15 months, all for making thousands of copies of a Microsoft Windows startup disk whose software is available for free online. We'll get his side of the story and talk to him about the broader issues of e-waste and who really owns the technology we buy. All right, so before we get to the news, I want to take care of a little housekeeping item here. We have been encouraging listeners to write to us, send us an email at slate.com with some feedback or a question, that kind of thing. And this week, we got a good question via a voice memo from an If Then listener. Let's go ahead and play that memo.
1: Hi, this is Virginia from Richmond. I'm curious and a bit concerned about the use of DNA information by law enforcement like we saw for the capture of the golden state killer obviously a great thing but what does it mean
2: on a bigger scale thanks
0: all right hi virginia from richmond that's a great question and i'm glad you asked because this is a topic that has fascinated me too Just for a little more context, so police say that the Golden State Killer committed at least 12 murders, 45 rapes, hundreds of home break-ins all over California. This was in the 70s and 80s. The case went cold for a long time. There was a famous book about it. And recently, they got a huge break in the case. They collected DNA from one of his crime scenes, and they were able to compare it to DNA records in a public database called gedmatch.com. And in that database, they found some similar DNA from people who must have been the distant relatives of whoever left that DNA at the crime scene, and then they went ahead and made an arrest. They uh, found a match and made an arrest of a 72-year-old man who they think is responsible after all these years. This is obviously a an impressive uh, piece of sleuthing by the police, and uh, the question from the listener: What does it mean on a bigger scale? Well, first of all, I, mean, I think the fact that we can now solve these kinds of cold cases that in a way that would have never been possible before is a big deal in itself. I don't want to, you know, I don't want the privacy concerns to minimize the fact that you know whenever a, a killer can be brought to justice you know using dna matching techniques that seems like a huge win however there are real privacy issues here it raises some fascinating questions about Uh, what happens when we use some of these increasingly popular services like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. Now, I should note that these commercial services where you do DNA testing and you pay for it, those were not the ones that police used to catch the suspect in the Golden State Killer case. They used a site that's a, a voluntary sort of research site where you can upload, it's free, And once you've got your DNA test from one of those other sites, you can upload it here and do some forms of comparison to, you know, potential relatives or to other people that aren't possible on the services you paid for, or you can compare DNA records across those services without having to pay extra fees. It's used by researchers in the academic community, uh, and now apparently authorities are increasingly using it. And what's interesting is that they caught the suspect not based on his own DNA, but based on the DNA of of some distant relatives who had uploaded theirs to this site. And to me, that's actually a little reminiscent of the Cambridge Analytica data scandal that we've been talking about so much. If you remember the people whose data was exposed to Cambridge Analytica, most of them had never even signed up for the app themselves that was harvesting the data. It was their friends who gave over the goods on them by signing up. And Facebook allowed the developers to get access to their friends' data. Well, when you uh, put your D- DNA uh, data online in some database, or when you use one of these services, in a sense, you're also giving up the DNA data of your relatives. And so whoever uploaded their DNA, who was a relative of the suspect, probably never imagined that they would be leading police to catch one of their family members, but that is, that is in fact what happened. Um, so I guess my takeaway for now, and, and there's still so much more to learn here, uh, but my takeaway for now is that we should probably think twice before we take one of these DNA tests. It's really cool technology. There are all kinds of possibilities, but the laws around it and the privacy norms around it have not caught up to those possibilities. And at least for me, I think it, it you know it might be prudent to wait until they do. But thanks again for writing in. Thanks for the great question. It's definitely something we're going to keep track of and, and maybe a topic that we'll have a chance to focus a whole show on in the coming weeks. All right. Now, my co-host April Glazer is calling in. April, where are you right now?
2: I am at F8, which is Facebook's annual developer conference, well-timed uh, after a kind of endless streak of news. And I'm sorry, I'm outside. So if you you hear cars behind me, I am literally at the conference now, just stepping outside to, to, to dispatch for the podcast. But it is day one of the conference. There's another day tomorrow. And Mark Zuckerberg opens today.
0: That's right. Yep. Yeah. So there were there was a lot of news from the conference. I noticed um, they uh, have a new some new privacy controls. They're delaying the launch of their smart speakers. They have updates to Facebook Messenger. What did you what what have you taken away so far from what's been announced?
2: You know, I think the most important announcement actually came before the conference. It's something that you wrote about today, Will. And that's the fact that Facebook is trying to get kind of a fresh start with a radical new privacy setting. Maybe you can go into that a little more in depth.
0: Yeah. So what Facebook announced is a privacy control that it calls Clear History. And so basically, you know how on your internet browser, you can go in and clear your browsing history. Facebook has never given you a way to do that before, which is kind of incredible given all the data that it has on you. It will finally roll that out. And it wasn't fully clear to me whether it is being compelled to do that in order to keep up with Europe's new data privacy law or whether this is something that's voluntary or some combination of the two.
2: Yeah, I would say, I would say though that they're like, you know, I don't think that this is necessarily a response to what's happening in the EU. I mean, certainly they may have to implement something like this, you know, in the e- EU with the new data privacy laws that are going into effect there, but they have no uh, reason to roll it out in the US other than the fact that they think it would be better for their users and perhaps, you know, quell some uh, some privacy concerns that have really reached a fever pitch since the Cambridge Analytica story for
0: Right. And, and so Facebook is, is obviously on the defensive. I think they're signaling here that they are willing to make some actual substantive changes that may even hurt their business in some ways.
2: I would say, though, that it's not substantive. <laughs> I would argue that, I mean, it's like, sure, it's important to, uh, to take a step to allow people to delete their browsing history, and that's great. But, you know, they're still apparently going to be holding this browsing history in an anonymized way. Um, and I'm not clear exactly. What that means, uh, you know, a lot of things that are anonymized online can also be de-anonymized. I'm not sure exactly, you know, what they're going to be doing with that data. You know, what the point of holding anonymized data is, if it's not to track you and serve personalized ads. So I feel like there's just still a lot of question marks for me about this. But certainly, you know, anonymizing data collection and and finding ways to to minimize parts of it, you know, is, is a is a very bold move. Uh, and the, what what our browsing history reveals about us is basically our curiosities and you know all kinds of things that we we just want to know and uh and you know it's also not clear that Facebook is going to delete the old stuff that it was holding or or are they i don't know will what, what what did you hear about that
0: yeah facebook says they will but i should be clear i wasn't clear when i first explained it facebook will let you delete the history that it collects on your web browsing habits and on your use of apps that link up with Facebook in various ways so as you go around the web browsing websites anytime you see a like button on a site that's facebook sort of spying on you I mean that's sending a signal back to facebook saying that right. you were there that's what facebook will now allow you to delete they will also allow you to opt out of that kind of tracking going forward and again as you pointed out april they will still be tracking you they just will be they will be divorcing that information from your name and identity so it'll be somehow anonymized but they're not going to stop tracking all the stuff you do on Facebook so it's not like they're going to stop tracking who you're friends with what posts you like the content what, you post on Facebook on, right? exactly they're still going to know a ton about you So, this conference also comes right after Facebook has clamped down on third-party developers' access to Facebook users' data. This, of course, after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, What is the mood there? I mean, all the the developers, this conference was supposed to be for the developers. They've sort of just been told, hey, you guys guys are cut off in a lot of ways. Now come uh, and celebrate with us the future of Facebook.
2: Well, the move there is that they still need developers to develop, uh, you know, apps and, and things for the future of Facebook. And the future of Facebook are new, innovative products, you know, things like AR and VR applications, um, you know, different ways to watch TV together. And uh, it seems like they're really trying to court developers into uh, into still making apps for, uh, for these kinds of new, innovative products that are not uh, widely used yet on Facebook, but they hope will be. You know, there definitely uh, was a lot some VR news that was came out today in relation to that. Oculus was put out on the market. I'm gonna be getting one on my way out of here. I think it's one ninety nine.
0: That's right, the new Oculus Go, right?
2: Yeah, and so that is a VR headset that's supposed to kind of make um, VR kind of democratized or something that, you know, anyone can do without having to rewire their living room uh, with a massively powerful computer. So, you know, that's something that, that came out today. And they do need developers to make this thing fun or to have any sort of value, right? And and another thing to remember is that when when Facebook courts developers, they often are watching what those developers are doing and then copy what works well, so well, they need developers not just to, to make their their new products uh, worth using, but also to kind of see what's worth it for them to invest in themselves.
0: Right. And, and yeah, VR, I, I know Facebook sees virtual reality and augmented reality as a big part of its future. I saw one of the weird new features that they announced today was apparently they will take old photos that you've posted on Facebook and let you enter those photos as an augmented reality environment. So like you could go and meet somebody in, in a photo of your childhood home or talk, have a conversation against the backdrop of your childhood home. It sort of reminded me of that movie, Eternal Spot, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Right. Seemed...
2: No, there's all kinds of like experimentation like that here. And that's where, that's where they're trying to get developers psyched.
0: And, but you're not a VR user yourself, right?
2: I've never tried it, but there are tons of people sitting down in chairs with these VR headsets on and they look like they are painting the sky with their eyes closed <laughs> It's really adorable. And I'm a little worried that they're going to hit me <laughs> because they can't <laughs> see I'm walking by, but, um, it, you know, maybe this is the future is we all have visors on and we have no idea who's actually in the room with us. Um.
0: Yeah, that's right. There was actually that famous moment at a previous F eight where everybody had their headset on and Mark Zuckerberg walked into the room without his headset and nobody knew he was there. It was like some kind of trick that he was playing.
2: It's weird, man. I mean, I guess this is the future, right? I, I'm going to try VR very, very soon, um, probably with the Oculus headset. I will report back as to how that goes. Uh, another uh, important announcement at uh, here at F8 is that Facebook is getting into the dating game. They are made kind of a, a photocopy of Tinder and Bumble uh, for Facebook that gets its own kind of separate environment, uh, kind of separate from your... Facebook page. So that way your friends don't know or see that you're also on the dating site. Um, but it, it looks a lot like Tinder.
0: Yeah. It's funny. It's like, it's almost weird that Facebook has not had a dating feature for all this time. I mean, it's like Facebook was sort of founded in back at Harvard as a way to, to stalk your crushes. And, and now Facebook is finally formally entering this space. Uh, I guess that's bad news for all the other dating apps out there. I saw that, that match, which is the parent company of Tinder had its stock closed down 22% today. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, and Facebook said there are about 200 million people who've marked themselves as single on Facebook. Uh, and it's important to remember that in order for Tinder to work, it taps into your Facebook profile. You know, it used to be for Bumble that you couldn't even use Bumble unless you were already on Facebook. You know, these companies were very much hinged and dependent on Facebook. And, uh, and Facebook is saying, oh, well, you need us. Well, what if we just take you over? <laughs> so we'll see how this, this works. I do think that there is some reticence, though, with, you know, putting your dating profile a little too close to where your friends and, and your colleagues and your family members all also camp out.
0: Yeah, kind of funny timing. They've had all this at the height of public concern over privacy on Facebook. They're like, hey, why don't you start using us as your as your dating app too?
2: You know, it, that, but I think this is this will be the real litmus test to see if people are actually super concerned about their privacy on Facebook or if it's just a fraction of people or if it's just the media like us kind of freaking out. Um, because if this takes off, then it'll probably show that there is still a lot of trust. It's Facebook, and so it's 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 actually a pretty apt time for them to release something like this, even though it seems a bit awkward I, I I can see some logic there.
0: Yeah, I guess it seems like Facebook is trying to open a new chapter here and put Cambridge Analytica behind them. Uh, April, thanks for joining me and and stay safe out there don't get Don't get hit in the face by any uh, crazy v R users.
2: Okay. Yeah, it was, it was great to chat for a minute. And uh, we have another day of this tomorrow, so we will continue to keep watch. Uh, everyone uh, take care and enjoy the rest of the show. All
0: right. I'll look forward to the rest of your coverage. All right. Time for a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with e-waste pioneer, Eric Lundgren.
3: Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com.
0: Our guest today is Eric Lundgren. He is an e-waste recycling pioneer. His company, IT Asset Partners, has 100 employees, runs what's considered the first electronic hybrid recycling facility in the United States. His company processes millions of pounds of e-waste every year. They once constructed an electronic car using old parts that was able to outlast a Tesla on one charge. But last week, Eric was sentenced to 15 months in prison for duplicating and selling Dell Restore disks for Microsoft Windows. They were intended for installation on used and refurbished computers to help prolong those computers' life. The disks and the software are actually free online with a valid Microsoft license, but Microsoft testified they have a value of $25 each and said that Lundgren's work amounted to counterfeit and a copyright violation. Uh, Eric sold the disks to a computer broker, in Florida for $3,400. That broker turned out to be working as a government informant. Eric, thank you for joining us on the show. Welcome to If Then. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you for having me. So you are headed to jail soon. You're headed to prison soon, actually. And in your view, it is for uh, attempting to do the the noble work. I think of helping people to use refurbished computers that would otherwise just be e waste, or that would otherwise you know poison the environment uh, or go to waste. In your view, why are you heading to prison?
3: Well. I'm heading to prison because I think the government um, did not understand. This was treated as a criminal case. Uh, It's the first on record to ever be treated as such. Uh, I'm headed to prison because the government did not understand that, um, that, that a Dell Restore CD is not a Microsoft operating system, that they don't function the same, that they're not valued the same, Uh, That that one has a license and one does not have a license, one is considered freeware, and one is the private IP of the, I think, 28th largest company in the world. Not being able to differentiate between a Dell Restore CD, which is freely downloadable online, and a Microsoft operating system that you buy at, I don't know, Best Buy, is the reason why I'm going to prison. All right, so walk me through this like a dummy.
0: Why are you ordering Dell Restore CDs for Microsoft Windows. I understand you're having them made in
3: in China and then shipped to the United States. Why are you doing that? Who, who needs those CDs? Well, when I was 16 years old, I started doing electronic recycling. And by 19, I was recycling for the largest Fortune 500 companies in the United States. And then by 23, I was actually living in China, running a company called Source Captain, where we would actually source all of the parts needed for repair, Repair of anything, you know, from a hospital bed to a wheelchair, all the all the way over to all electronics that you could possibly imagine. So, if if there was a part or piece or component that would break, I would be the guy that would source that part, piece, or component—the generic part, piece, component—and get it to the refurbisher so that we could fix these things and continue to use them in society. Uh, It was really rewarding work, and I I loved what I did. Um, And at that time, while I was in China for approximately five years. You know, I got a call, and the call was from uh, a a refurbishing broker that I had dealt with many times before over the last four years. And he was requesting these um, repair tools, these it's a Dell Restore CD that is given away for free, that everybody listening to this podcast can go online and download for free. Uh, but the problem was that the OEMs stopped basically providing the CD. They all instead, started providing these links um, on their websites for you to download the CD. And most people didn't know how to download a CD. And if they did, they didn't know how to burn the iOS image to a CD. So I was just trying to make it um, easy and convenient by putting that tool in the hands of the consumers that needed that tool so that they could uh, extend the life cycle of their electronics, all of their computers. Take it from working for 2 years to now working for 4 years just by having, you know, that that uh, restore CD, which is freeware, everybody can access it and anybody listening to this podcast right now could literally do exactly what I did. All right. And
0: so the crux of the government's case as I understand it, though, was that you were actually Using the, you're actually selling these restore CDs. Um, and and the fact that you were selling them allegedly, you know, according to Microsoft's response, allegedly for a profit, Microsoft saw that as as counterfeit, and Microsoft pointed out that they in fact sell, they themselves sell for twenty five dollars these same CDs
3: as part of a program where they work with refurbishers of computers. I've heard this a lot, and it is 100% not true. So let's break down what Microsoft is saying. Um, One, Microsoft sells a new license, and they sell a new operating system to refurbishers through an MRR program, which is a private market. Um, for twenty five dollars to the public, they sell it for a lot more, right? One hundred ninety nine or two ninety nine, or you know, some of them are like a, a, a you know a pay to play subscription these days with the online cloud Microsoft versions. But in all cases, Microsoft sells licenses. Um the Restore CD actually uses the license that came with the computer and your license for a computer follows that computer in perpetuity so that means if I sold it to you and then you gave it to your younger brother and then he sold it on eBay the license follows the hardware into the hardware's demise that's the law so basically um had I had I produced and successfully gotten out millions of these Restore CDs It would not have cost Microsoft a penny. Um, No potential revenue could have been lost. And the only real, the only, the, 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 the consequences of my actions would have been a healthy society, a healthy environment and computers that lasted for all consumers and lasted longer. Um, There was no evil or bad byproduct of the actions that we were were attempting to take. And I say attempting because none of these were sold. We imported them. They were confiscated. Bob Wolf turned state's evidence. And before I knew it, my house was raided. The first time I was warned about this was, you know, a a kicking down of my door when I wasn't even home and the raiding of my house by um, agents with guns in the whole nine yards. Um, And within 48 hours... I was flying to the DA's office in Florida, meeting with him and saying, do you know what this is about? Do you know what a restore CD is? Do you know that there's no licenses and this is this is a freeware repair tool? Do you know that I'm a recycler? I, I have no criminal history. I am not a criminal. But this case and Microsoft want you to think that I'm some criminal mastermind that's trying to, you know, be some evil villain that's trying to hurt the world. And that's just not the case. If you if you do any research as far as who I am as an individual and what I've lived for since I was 16 years old, I want to stop e-waste from going into landfills. I want to make sure that we live in a healthy environment. And I want to make sure that that all these things that we build last as long as possible for people. So this is an issue of who really has
0: the rights to use the technology that we buy. Uh, Is this the kind of issue that you've run up against before in your career? I mean, is this a broader issue than just
3: one of Microsoft Windows uh, restore disks? Constantly. Yes. Um, Yes, Will. This is something where if you go back eight years when PC sales were hot, they started to dive. People started to use tablets and phablets and phones and laptops and other formats of computers, right? And so, companies oems didn't care uh back then specifically microsoft didn't care which pc you bought they just cared that you you know bought a pc every two years and they're seeing a direct correlation there's a a, a large percentage of their market share which is being taken by second-hand electronics and every refurbisher out there that's that's refurbishing 40 50 60,000 laptops every month all of those laptops that are put back into the market are directly competing with the new equipment that these companies are trying to sell. So yeah, there's some, there's some conflict there. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there was a press release made today by um, iFixit by the Right to Repair movement, which I love. If you ever hashtag Right to Repair, you can see it everywhere. They're trying to, you know, give the power back to the people and get repair manuals and tools to the actual consumers that are needed to re- to, to to empower them to repair their things that they own. I I would love it if everybody listening to this could start looking into the e-waste epidemic that we're facing. This problem is a lot bigger than me. I am just one singular cog in the wheel. And and honestly, um, yeah, my my situation personally, it's it's a horrific thing to go through. But um, if there's a silver lining here, it's the fact that I guess it's the fact that people will pay attention and start wondering, you know, what they're doing with their waste. And hopefully Microsoft will never uh, try to imprison another recycler for sharing repair tools, freeware repair tools. Right. And, and of course, it's not just Microsoft. I mean, we see
0: this with Apple products famously there. You can't just open them up and, and fix them yourself. You know, they encourage you to, to bring them into Apple. You have companies that uh, will update your your software on devices you own and you don't have control
3: over over how or when they do those updates necessarily. Or Intel. You got Intel with their CPUs that they just decreased by 40% and, you know, gave a silly reason why, but that's a bait and switch. You know, the the batteries with Microsoft, the LCDs with Microsoft, the LCMs, all the way over to Apple, who says, you know, um, we're going to slow down all of our old phones because of the battery issue. Well, I I just I have a problem with that. I have a problem with somebody selling things to the general public and then kind of uh, pushing them into landfills slowly by not providing the repair tools that are needed by not providing the services that are needed for you to be able to continue to use your products, by, by not letting repair uh, uh, anybody in refurbishing get a hold of the parts needed to go ahead and fix the products themselves. It's, it's one thing to say we're not going to support repair, but it's another thing to go after the industry that is doing repair. People are standing up and saying, I'll fix that for you. You know, I, I can go ahead and fix that today. And then Microsoft or, or Apple or, or, you know, any one of these tech companies, all the OEMs, they're all coming back and saying, well, we're not going to provide the parts and we're not going to let the laws pass and we're not going to offer the, 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 the instruction manuals and, and, and the things needed to actually repair things because it's not in their favor. They, they want the world to maintain, to be a use and toss society. They want us to continue to be wasteful. And just the ideology behind waste is horrible. If I treat my phone like this and my computer like this, I start to treat humans like this. I start to treat the world like this. Society as a whole cannot continue to just throw things in a landfill like Neanderthals. Right. So so just because we do
0: not have Microsoft on the show, I, want to, I should briefly mention that in their statement responding to recent stories about you and about your case, Microsoft said, quote, we fully support refurbishing and recycling of computers and have robust programs to support this. Uh, they are saying that the issue is that you went outside of those channels and that you were passing off uh, CDs as as authentic, basically making the CDs look like they were the original Dell Restore CDs when in fact they weren't. That that that
3: you know they're trying to narrow it to that specific issue. Okay, so when they say that they fully support um, recycling, they give a number of 11 million kilograms that they've recycled since 2012. I want you to be aware that that number. Is approximately what my singular company recycles, just my company recycles in nine months. So I, I just yes, sure they do um, minimal recycling efforts themselves. But if you look at the law, the right to repair that that did not get passed in Washington State, there's a press release that's coming out today um, from the right to repair movement, and it's it's showing that that this is not a singular act. This is not a singular case against me as an individual as a recycler as an environmentalist but that that Microsoft continuously does this nationwide to try to hold back repair and hold back recycling knowing that it affects their bottom line when they say that I and and now now here's the major accusation that they have against me and and I'm going to admit to you that that there is a part of it that's absolutely correct they say that I should not have put the logo the Dell logo they say their logo and the Dell logo, but their logo is not on the CD. It's a Dell Restore CD um, that comes with your computer for free that you can download for free. They say, I, they say that I should not have put that logo on the CD, that I should have called it Eric's Free Restore CD, Eric's Free Repair Tool. And I agree. I agree. This happened six years ago, uh, seven now, seven years ago, and um, they're absolutely correct. Um, but that's a civil issue. And, uh, they're entitled to all of the funds that were made or would have been made, which would have equated to $7,000. So they, they should have civilly sued me for $7,000 that for, for specifically for trademark infringement. My one mistake could have given me a $7,000 fine, but not a felony and a criminal conviction and prison time in my situation. Um, they convinced the United States of America that I was a pirate, that I was a counterfeit copyright um, uh, kingpin, and that I should be criminally indicted and uh, imprisoned. And the sad thing is that um, the court case that I was in, nobody in that court case understood what a restore city was, including my my legal defense. Um, and it was it was just, People didn't understand the difference between, you know, you have a Microsoft expert witness sitting there saying, here's our operating system and the same bits and bytes are on this restore CD. And we sell the operating system for twenty five dollars with a license. And then the restore CD then is worth blank. And the judge says twenty five dollars. You know what the judge doesn't realize is that Microsoft sells the, the, the license. Microsoft sells the license. That's what you're buying. You know the restore CD is free everywhere. So
0: Eric, this is you're obviously facing a, a very tough situation now as you're you're headed to prison soon. Even the judge who denied your appeal, I believe, said it was difficult and that you're a remarkable person. Um, how are you making sense of this, and what good, if any, do you think? Uh, you know, could could come out of it. I mean, what do you what do you hope changes here? Is it just a matter of companies being less aggressive in pursuing people over stuff like copyright violations or or allegations of counterfeit? Or is there a change in the laws that you're hoping for? Is it a change in the public consciousness? What do you hope could come out of this?
3: Well, I'm, uh, I am I am publicly calling for a sit down with Microsoft. Um, I want the right to repair movement. I want iFixit, I want USPIRG, Nader's company, myself, I want the entire repair coalition. I want them all to be there and they all want to be there. They're all constantly contacting Microsoft saying, let's sit down, let's talk about how we can move recycling forward. How can we make sure that, that in the future... It is in the the corporation's best interest to support recycling and to support repair. That's where we need to get to. We need to live in a society where we reward those who benefit our society. You see, see, corporations are not good and evil, and I'm not personally saying Microsoft's evil. You know, I think that they do great things. I think what they're doing to me is evil, but I, I've seen amazing things that they've done in around the world. The problem is that, a corporation is directed by financial profits all the way up to the CEO and to the shareholders. It's all about making that stock price go up. So they don't do good or bad. They just kind of go after profit. So how can we make it profitable for people to do the right things, for corporations to do the right things? How can we make it profitable uh, to eliminate e-waste? How can we make it profitable to create solutions that are efficient in our society? Once we learn how to do that, we're going to be able to change the world. And that's that's really what I'm focusing on for the rest of my life. And my goal here, I, I mean, as, as horrible as it is for me to have to go to prison, and it is horrible, um, I, I am inspired and I have this newfound faith in humanity when I see 8.6 million people online hashtagging and sharing and talking and communicating. And I watch as the world picks up this gauntlet that I've been carrying and trying to fight my entire life and take it to places that are way beyond um, anywhere that I could take it to. Eric Lundgren, our thoughts are with you.
0: Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. One more quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of our favorites from the web this week. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. With April at F8, we have with us this week a special guest. It's our friend and colleague, Heather Schwedell, who covers internet culture, social media, celebrities, and more for Slate. She has written great stories about the object labeling meme, about James Comey's Twitter account... Uh, one that was called The Decent Human Being's Guide to Logan Paul, which I loved. And she's sort of a perfect guest for Tabs because she writes a column called Good on the Internet, which is basically like the Slate.com version of Tabs. Last week, it was about Chrissy Teigen. Is it Teigen or Teigen, Heather? Teigen. Chrissy Teigen logging into Neopets after a long hiatus. Heather, welcome to If Then.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So what tab could you not close this week, Heather?
1: I really liked this story on the cut called "The Distinct Pleasures of the Movie Pass Movie." And um, it was about how Movie Pass um, has actually uh, created a new category of movie similar to the airport. Or the airplane movie. Now we have the Movie Pass movie, and I, I guess we should back up, and
0: I should say what Movie Pass is. Yeah, tell us what, because I, I like only have this vague idea actually of what Movie Pass is. Sure.
1: So it's a subscription service that allows you to see basically as many movies as you want. So you send away for this card and then you also use the movie pass app which is the tech connection and you can see a movie a day with it and instead of paying for the movie you just swipe your movie pass card so it's a really great deal but it's also caused some consternation i think in in like hollywood and and surrounding industries because like people aren't paying for movies and then the app itself is kind of like everyone's wondering what the um, business plan is, like how can this at all be a a business proposition that works long term to just let people go to as many movies as they want for free. There was also that whole thing where like they're collecting data on us and um, people didn't realize the extent to which that's going on but i can say as someone who owns a movie pass i mean if you love to go to the movies it's a great deal while it lasts i don't know if it'll last forever
0: yeah and definitely totally worth uh sacrificing your your uh, privacy for a movie a day um it's a good it's a good trade it's better than most of the trades of of data privacy that we make online every day i guess
1: yeah. So it sort of changes your relationship with, with the price of a movie. You're no longer thinking, you know, in New York City, it costs, you know, $17 to go to a, a movie, but you're no longer facing that hurdle. So now you, you can see movies with much less thought about the, the cost benefit. You, you can just go and that creates like a much lower bar for what, what you'll see.
0: I like it. It's um, for me. It would almost make going to the movies feel like an obligation because you have to get your money's worth, right? And so, and so, I guess the idea of this piece is that then you go and see movies that you would never otherwise see. What's an example, Heather, of a MoviePass movie that you have seen that you would never have gone to see otherwise? Well,
1: I love the movies, so I would, I would kind of go to anything. But um, I, don't, I don't love superhero movies, so I, I'm not sure if I would have gone to see. Um, like Black Panther if it if it weren't a movie pass movie um i i went to see Chappaquiddick, which it was like a historical drama about um Ted Kennedy incident in Chappaquiddick. i'm not sure i definitely would have seen those over other things but um they were free or or not free but i mean the the plan i bought cost Something like nine ninety five a month. So you really only have to see one movie to make it worth it. Or the, the article points out you can see two-thirds of a movie to make it <laughs> worth it. And, and just walk out and still feel like, you know, you got your money's worth. So I, to me, that's not hard at all. Like seeing a movie a month, like done.
0: All right. Fair enough. Count me among the people who are skeptical that this could possibly be sustainable. But who knows? Like when you wave your hands in Silicon Valley and say data, then investors will flock to you uh, no matter how plausible your actual balance sheet looks.
1: Yeah. And I guess they also have this plan where they think they're going to have this audience that they're going to be able to... um you know, publicize movies too and have this sort of direct link to, you know, we'll send droves of audience your way and sort of make it worth the theater goers while. But I'm, I'm with you in thinking like, okay, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it.
0: (laughs) All right. Now it's your turn, Heather, to ask me what tab I, I couldn't close this week.
1: Okay. Um, Will, what tab could you not
0: close this week? Oh, thank you for asking, Heather. My tab this week was from the Wall Street Journal, um, and April actually flagged this in Slack, so I'm going to call it half her tab and, and half mine, since she can't be here to represent it. Uh, the headline was, Google versus Google, How nonstop Political Arguments Rule Its Workplace. This is a story about what happens when people are encouraged to, in Google's words, bring their whole selves to work. It is apparently not always pretty. Uh, So, we talk about Google a lot of times like it's some kind of monolith. In some ways, it can seem like that politically. Uh, The story notes that donations by Google employees to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign outnumbered contributions to Trump's campaign by a factor of 62 to 1%. But then we have stuff like the James Damore memo, uh, where there's a sort of a backlash against political correctness within Google. There are are definitely conservatives who work there. There are members of the alt-right who work there. We found out after the YouTube shooting that there is a a group that formed at Google of uh, gun owners who want to be able to bring their guns to work. It's called Militia at Google. So the story just dives into all these different groups. There's activists at Google, conservatives at Google, sex positive at Google, and the ways in which they are increasingly at odds with each other. This is a company where the culture has always valued a free exchange of ideas, but increasingly uh, it's running up against issues where one person's free expression is uh, another person's cause for offense. One of the most recent anecdotes was that a group within Google called Googlers for Animals invited the president of PETA, the People the people for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, to come talk at Google. And then uh, a, another group within Google, led by the Black Google network uh, argued against it and said that it was uh, th- that her views were offensive because she's comparing the discrimination faced by animals to the discrimination faced by humans uh, and so Google went ahead and canceled that talk there was uh, some internal strife about it now they're working on new guidelines as to what you you know what you can say or who you can have to speak it's just it's very interesting because it's a side of Google that that I don't think we really see when we use the search engine or the little the little Google Home salt shaker on our kitchen table
1: i think none of us would have imagined that there could be a a militia at google but the the james demore memo really did sort of just crack open the the whole there's a lot more going on inside the company than we knew about i guess with with the whole thing where his his memo initially went internally viral Um, yeah that's super interesting
0: yeah it's and it's interesting just because you know Google has this problem of of trying to regulate hate speech all around the world but it also has this problem of of how to regulate its employees speech internally um so that was my tab this week check it out also check out Heather's tab from The Cut the unique pleasure. What was it called? The unique pleasure of a movie pass movie. I think it
1: was the distinct pleasure. Thank you. The distinct of the pleasure
0: of a movie pass movie. Heather Schwedell, thank you so much for joining us for Tabs this week. We hope to have you again soon.
1: Uh, you're welcome.
0: Thanks. All right. That's our show for today. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at IfThen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, your suggestions for show topics or guests, or just tell us hi. You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. April is at April Laser. I'm at Will Arimus. Thanks again to our guest today, Eric Lundgren. You can find him on Twitter at CEO Mr. Green. And thanks again to Heather Schwedell, who is at Heather Twit. That's Heather T-W-I-T. And if you'd leave us a comment and review on iTunes, we'd be forever grateful. It really helps boost our show, let more listeners find out about us. I also read all the reviews on there because I am a masochist, apparently. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU Studio in Santa Barbara. Thanks also to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. And additional help from Erica Moo in Los Angeles. We'll see you next week.